Tonight's scripture reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 to 23. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Tonight, we will continue our series, like John talked about just a moment ago, talking about the cardinal traits of a disciple. And I want you to think for a moment with me. I wish I could do uh, a movie trailer guy's voice like my best friend in college, Mac, can do. But since I can't, I just want you to pretend like you're watching a movie trailer. And the guy's voice comes over the mic. In a world where evil reigns. And then... He describes, if it's a bad movie trailer, he tells you every single thing that's going to happen, and then you don't even need to see the movie. But if it's a good trailer, he gives you just enough. What is going, what is going wrong in this world? So picture our current state as a movie trailer in a city where hopelessness reigns, where sharks on Wall Street take everyone's money, where political giants ridicule the brokenhearted, and the obsolete. Where homelessness is everywhere around you. Where people don't know if they can pay their rent, if their job is secure, or if their marriage is authentic. And then what happens next in a good movie trailer? The Savior comes, right? So if it's the Bourne trilogy, then it would be, here comes Jason Bourne. He's going to come in on a motorcycle flying around the streets of Paris or Rome, and he's going to get the bad guys who are responsible for all this injustice. And in the end, there's a cliffhanger, so you have to go see the movie, and you find out, hopefully, that the good guy, the good girl, wins. The Savior comes and fixes all of the problems. And as I was preparing for this sermon and looking at the text that Manu just read, I'm thinking of our city, the one that I just described. And I'm thinking, because I'm a follower of Jesus, that if the movie trailer announcer continues, his solution to those problems all of them, and the myriads of others that I didn't address, is the church. So my question for you tonight is, what happens when the church doesn't ever show up? What happens if the movie trailer guy just keeps announcing, announcing, announcing all of the heartache and all of the brokenness and all of the hopelessness and he just goes on and on and on and then the trailer's over? 
Or worse, what if the trailer ends by saying, but there are some in the city who have hope and life abundantly and an indwelling presence of the eternal, almighty God, powerful enough to change every life in the city. But they're too consumed with themselves to give it to anyone else. That would be the worst movie. And as I was listening to these words that Jesus tells the disciples, and then following all of the cross-references, you know, in your Bible when you're reading and you see the little number one or the little letter A, and if you're on a digital version, which is really convenient, you can just click on that and it hyperlinks you straight over to that next passage. Following all of those, all of this surrounds on this idea that Jesus is saying to his disciples after He raised himself from the dead. You are sent with peace, with the power of the Holy Spirit to go into the world and forgive sins. So tonight, I want us to look at these verses and talk about those three things that we are sent with peace, with power, and to forgive. And then I want us to imagine as we leave tonight that these great songs that we just sang, the worship that we have brought to the Lord that is pleasing to him would not return void when we leave and do nothing. Come back into thinking of ourselves or our family or all of our own problems that we pass right past the hopeless person who has no hope in Jesus. So, Jesus does something amazing to the disciples right here. Let's read again just verses 19 through 21. John, this is the beloved apostle who's writing this. So he is one that was in the inner circle of trust with Jesus. And this is how he describes it. He says, On the evening of that day, Do you know what day that is? That's the day of the resurrection. So remember, the women have gone to the tomb and they saw the resurrected Jesus. And then Jesus is coming later on that evening, the first day of the week, and the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. We find out in a, in a later, in a, later in this chapter and more in depth in another gospel that Thomas was doubting that Jesus actually raised until Jesus did that. And he said, put your finger in that hole. I'm really here. So he's proving to them, this is me. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. 
So Jesus here appears into the room. Now some have had conjecture over how exactly he got into the room. Was Jesus a hologram and he was able to go pass through the wall, some sort of ghost figure? But this is not orthodox Christian thought because Jesus actually uh, did things that physical people do while he was raised from the dead. He ate, he slept, this is after the resurrection, and people touched him. So he had a physical body. So it wasn't that he just passed through the walls like a ghost. But it is that he came to be in their midst. So there's a mystery to it. And that's okay. But he had a message for them. Point number one, if you would like to take notes on the back of your worship folder or on your phone, is that when we are sent, a disciple is sent with peace. Jesus stands in their midst and the first thing that he says because they are certainly fearful is peace be with you. In John chapter 14 verse 27 Jesus says peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled neither let them be afraid. So what is the peace Christ, it is that your heart would not be troubled at what you are seeing, or for us, what you are believing, even though you did not see it. Because these are troubling things to say that you believe in in a person who has risen from the dead. Not with an EKG machine shocking them back to life after a few seconds. No, three days dead and buried, and now they are risen from the dead. That might trouble your heart especially if you're a skeptic in the room. The peace of Christ is that your heart would not be troubled by this and also that you would not be afraid. So they were fearful that Jesus just showed up in the room even though the doors were locked. Now, I don't know if they had quite the deadbolt advantage that we have now in New York City, you know, to be able to close the door, lock the handle, lock the top lock, lock the bottom lock, lock the third lock, lock the chain— But they were surprised for sure that he was there and he wanted to give them peace so their hearts wouldn't be troubled and so that they would not be afraid. And the best part about this passage is that Jesus does the same exact thing for you and I. Jesus has come into our lives just as he came into the room where the disciples were gathered for fear of the Jews. He also has reign kingly reign in our hearts just like he did in the house where the disciples hid in fear. So just like he had a kingly reign over the elements, the physical elements of this world when he was resurrected that he could just appear inside of a house even though it was locked, he has that same type of kingly reign over our hearts when he dwells inside of us. In similar ways, as the disciples of Christ, we are fearful of what the world around us will do, think or say, if it becomes widely known, that we place our faith and hope in Jesus Christ. So what I mean by that is they were fearful that the Jews were going to attack them because they had faith, they put their hope, they put their trust, they put their whole life in this man, Jesus who these Jews consider to be a blasphemer. 
So they were scared. What are they going to do to us because we do this fanatical thing? We put our faith and our hope in this man. What are they going to say about us? What are they going to do to us? Have you ever felt like that? You see, Jesus is speaking to us in this, in this action. He's saying, I know that you sometimes are locked up inside of your house, in your body, fearful of what others will be thinking about you if they knew that you had hope, if they knew that you placed your faith in me, if they knew that you were willing to sacrifice everything for me. I know that you're scared of that, but watch. I can come into that place where, nowhere else can, where no one else can come. No one else has authority there. I can appear there, and when I'm there, I bring peace. So those fears, they go away. He, entered into our, he enters into our lives just as he entered that room the Sunday of his resurrection. And his access to our fears have no boundaries. Think about that. Jesus' access to your fears have no boundaries. Just like his access to that house. Locks couldn't keep it out. Walls couldn't keep his access out. Depending on what floor they were on, the height couldn't keep Jesus out. And in the same way, our fears, they have no boundaries that can keep Christ from coming to them. And the beauty, so so see some people, if they had access to your fears, would want to exploit them. Politicians do a good job of this, right? We call it fear-mongering, but it's when someone sees that there are fears that a, a group of people have, and what they can do is grandstand and force or at least manipulate those fears to give them power by promising things or by just catering to the fears. But Jesus doesn't do that. When he has full access, no boundaries at all to your fears, he neutralizes them. He doesn't bring animosity. He doesn't bring manipulation. He brings peace. Christ's presence neutralizes your fears. Neutralizes my fears. And when those fears are confronted, they're confronted with peace. All of the fears, none are admitted with Christ in the room. No fear is allowed. All of them are cast out. This is, this is something that's hard to get cognitively for me. This is not something I have to convince myself of. This is truth. Do you understand that? This isn't, this isn't something you have to sit around and say, man, I wish I could just really convince myself that, I, that really fear doesn't exist when Christ is here. It is truth that when Christ is present in your heart, fears are vanquished. He comes, and when he comes, he comes with peace. He speaks to you, peace be with you. And just like the old hymn says, all fear is gone. 
because I know that he holds the future. Christ is here and fear is gone. You don't have to convince yourself of that. That is truth. So instead of trying to convince yourself of it, you can rest in it. If you're like me, though, you really want to try to convince yourself of it because that's work. Jesus says, no, just here's the peace. It's yours. This is something we are given. You are given. Receive it. Don't try to figure it out. You can trust that Christ's presence extinguishes the fears of your everyday and those special fears that attack you at different times. Right? So you have fears that are sort of lying dormant all of the time. This is a fear like of a dark alley. That fear is there the whole time, but you're usually just not experiencing it because you're not often walking in a dark alley by yourself. But when you are, that fear comes up. Your senses are heightened. You start to look around. You wonder, I do this when I have my headphones on and I'm walking at night. A lot of times I'll just turn the music down a little bit more because you can't hear footsteps and you don't really know who's behind you, right? So that fear's there, but the darkness, maybe being alone, brings it out. So those, I would, those are everyday fears. And there are certainly others. There's um, f- fears that you have that are tied to relationships. Fears that are tied to um, money and jobs. These everyday fears. But then there are special fears. So this is kind of like when my son Micah has a nightmare. And if you're wondering how this peace of Christ thing works... Go back to when you were six years old and you had a nightmare. And your mom or your dad or your grandpa or grandpa or aunt or uncle walked into the room. Peace comes. Now Micah doesn't know that I might be just as scared as him of the dark. And he might be right. But he doesn't know that. So if it's dark and Micah's in the top bunk and I hear him scream or I hear him yell, Dad, and I walk in the room, he knows everything's okay. Dad's here. He experiences peace just by my presence in the room. This is what Christ does in our lives. This is what he did for the disciples in person. And John left it here. John says, everything I wrote here was written for one reason, so that you would believe. So this was left here so that we would believe that when Christ walks in the room, peace is with him. So, a disciple of Jesus is sent with peace. And the peace does not come without a promise. Check this out in verse 22. And when he had said this, peace be with you, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, just to get your, our timeline adjusted properly, when Jesus lived his first 29 and a half or 30 years on earth, he was living like an everyday person. He had school, he had work, he had a mom and dad, he had brothers and sisters. 
And then something happened. He went down to the river where John the Baptist was baptizing. And he told John the Baptist to baptize him. And he did, after some convincing. And when Jesus came out of the water, do you remember what happens? The Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And God the Father said, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. This marks the event when the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus in a powerful way that he had not experienced before that moment. And the first thing the Holy Spirit does is drive Jesus into the wilderness where he's tempted. And as soon as he gets out of the wilderness, he begins his ministry. The second point is the promise that comes with that peace. So it's not something you just have to know. It's something that you have that's promised by the Holy Spirit. So we're not just sent with peace. We are sent with power. And that power is the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus breathes on them, symbolizing, or not even symbolizing, actually giving them the Holy Spirit. Now we know from uh, later on, he tells, what Manu read was later on, Jesus says, now you guys wait here in the city with this power that you're, you're gonna have to wait for a little while and then what, you'll know when it's time to go. And that happens at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit falls down in Acts 1.8, or Jesus ascends in Acts 1.8 and he says, now go into the world. I want you to go to Judea, Samaria, um, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the world. And then just a few verses later, Pentecost happens and the Holy Spirit just takes it on the road all over the known world. But what Jesus is doing here is he is joining the disciples and us in his resurrection. He's breathing the power of the resurrection on us. So at his ascension, the Holy, this is not two separate givings of the Holy Spirit. It's just a different way to understand it. The Holy Spirit is given to us in this moment this moment of belief so that we would do something. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But Jesus was sent by the Father to proclaim the message of the gospel. And just as during his ministry he was empowered by the Holy Spirit, you and I as his disciples are also empowered by the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus even says in John chapter 14 that you, referring to us, will do even greater works than he did because the Spirit is so powerful. So, Jesus comes into our lives and he comes with peace, vanquishing our fears. They are no more. And he says, he breathes and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And it's not over yet because do you remember the the movie, the movie trailer you heard at the beginning of this? Because I forget that movie trailers and movies need the Savior sometimes because I love these two parts. I have peace in my life. Think about where you are right now. I have peace. 
My fears are vanquished. I have power, the Holy Spirit, power to resist temptation, power to love extravagantly to others, power to not think of myself always first, but for some reason now I can think of others. Power, I have the Holy Spirit in me. He has forgiven my sins. Remember how bad the movie would have been had it stopped before the Savior showed up, though? This is where I get stuck, right here after point two. I've got a lot of peace from Jesus. I have the power of the Holy Spirit. But so often, I'm not going for point three. Listen to verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. A disciple is sent in order to display and proclaim the message of forgiveness to a sinful world. We are the character in the trailer who comes to save the day. We are sent to carry light into the darkness, sent to proclaim liberty to the captives and sight to the blind and hope to the hopeless. We are sent to forgive. Number three. I pray that tonight what I will learn and what you will learn is that if we just have peace in our own lives and are understanding better and better through worship together, through community, through singing, through scripture, that God's Holy Spirit is empowering us and we do nothing, then we are not living sent. And we are missing a cardinal trait of a disciple. A disciple is sent. And when we don't go anywhere, we're missing the gospel. Luke 24, 47 says, to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. It's said other places, other ways. Jesus says it in Matthew 28, to go therefore to all nations. In Acts, like I said earlier, it says Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. So you don't have to wonder about where you are sent. Oftentimes that becomes a hang-up for people. Where should I go do this? Everywhere. Yes. Where should you go? Yes. To work, to your family, to your church, to the homeless person, to the rich person. There's nowhere better to do that on earth than New York City either, by the way. To minister to the rich and the poor, the remembered and the forgotten. The ones performing injustice and the victims of injustice. All nations. We have all of that right here in our city. It's possible that you have all of that on your block. Here in verse 23, we see that the church has been given the responsibility to forgive sins 
as Christ has. This is a powerful responsibility and one that we obviously cannot take lightly. And we have to remember here who Jesus forgave. Do you remember? I'll give you a, here's a list of some people he forgave. During his ministry, you can read about him forgiving tax collectors. Those were the most reviled men and women of the day. Because as Jews themselves, they were working in cooperation with the Roman government, i.e. the enemy, to tax other Jews. And most times, they took advantage of the taxes they were taking already. So these are the, the reviled ones. He, he <clears throat> gave them forgiveness. The publicans or the politicians, he gave them forgiveness. The Jews and the Gentiles, Samaritans, it's like cultural enemies. So think uh, the racism that you have in your heart towards certain other people. The racism or the sexism or the elitism. So this is just the things inside your heart that make you cringe or that make it difficult for you to love another person because of where they are from, how they sound, the color of their skin, the money in their bank account, whatever it is, those people for the Jews were the Samaritans, the tax collectors. Jesus gave them forgiveness. He also forgave men and women. It's important in our, for our society to recognize. Demon-possessed people who are troubled, people who we don't understand, people who put us off. He forgave the poor and the rich. He even forgave the humble and the proud. This message that we have been given to deliver is from the Father. This one who desires that all would come to know Jesus. So this is a warning to you and I. It is not our duty to decide who receives the message of forgiveness. We don't get to make that call. In this sense, we are the messenger. And a great way to get yourself killed is to change the message of your master. Right? Think of of war times before emails and cell phones, when a messenger actually had to carry a physical message across a land. You don't change the message. You don't have authority there. And it's our duty to give this message to the same that Jesus gave it to, which was everyone. Um, And it's a privilege that we have to deliver this message of forgiveness liberally to all who will listen. From this passage and from Matthew 16, 20, a secondary thing about this forgiveness thing and withholding forgiveness, we know that it's not, our only, it's not only our duty to deliver it, but then upon delivering it, it's our duty to grant forgiveness to the repentant. And this is hard sometimes for me to do. So sometimes you might be like Jonah when he finally did go to Nineveh and he preached forgiveness to them, and they repented. They listened. They turned to to God. 
They tore their clothes into sack. They went into sackcloth and ashes. They fell on their knees and they proclaimed God is good. And it ticked Jonah off. He didn't want to accept it. He just wanted to pronounce their judgment on them. The problem is, that's not the message we were given. We were given the message of forgiveness. And we, upon delivering it, are to grant that forgiveness to all who are repentant, just as Jesus did. And we are to, to declare that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And this forgiveness is to be repeated, as Christ told Peter when he asked, how many times should I forgive a brother, though, Jesus? Let's not get out of hand. He said, 70 times 7, which is hyperbole. He doesn't actually mean 490 times and no more. He means you forgive and you keep forgiving. There are also ramifications contained here for the order of the body of the church. When one inside the family of Connection Church, if you're a part of the family members, you know this, when we see another one in sin, we are bound by covenant to address it one-on-one with humility and gentleness. Then, as Scripture lays out, go with another brother or sister, then with a pastor, and finally to the church body. And if unrepentance continues, then the unrepentant one is to be broken off from the family. But the doors always remain open upon repentance. That's where the 70 times 7 goes in. So this is laid out in the book of Matthew. It's commonly referred to as church discipline. But this giving and withholding forgiveness, if you're wondering what that means, it's talking about this is how this happens inside of the body of believers. There is unrepentance. And when unrepentance happens, forgiveness is withheld. That's actually how it works. The only way to be forgiven is to repent. When there's no repentance, there is no forgiveness. So lastly, we must remember that it is in the same sentence that Christ gives us this beautiful, exciting mission to proclaim forgiveness of sins to the world and to one another, that he also gives us the responsibility to hold one another accountable for the sins Christ gave his life to forgive. It's important for us to remember that, that this is a beautiful thing, forgiveness, Sometimes it's a difficult thing because sometimes we're the unrepentant one. And sometimes someone may say to us, Larry, I think that you are off base here. I believe that you're in sin. That's a, that's a difficult thing to do. It would be difficult for one of you, no matter how close we are, to say that to me. It would be difficult for me to say that to you. But this is a gift that comes with that responsibility. And we must take it. We, we cannot take it lightly. It needs to be weighty in our heart that the forgiveness that I have received, I must carry to others and I must be willing to repent when it's pointed out in me. A, a sent disciple is following Jesus to the utmost because Jesus was sent with peace.
He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he proclaimed forgiveness of sins to all who repented. So church, in the great movie trailer of life, don't be caught holding the hope and the joy and the everlasting abundant life that your neighbors, that your enemies, your coworkers are desperate for. You are sent to proclaim forgiveness for them. So let it be said of us that we're the forgiveness people. Let that trailer play out in your mind and hear the voice saying, these ones at Connection Church who have hope and life and love, they don't fear because Christ expelled their fears. They don't shy away because they have great power in the Holy Spirit. And their message is not condemnation or judgment. Their message is forgiveness with arms open wide. Come one, come all to the cross of Jesus where your sins are laid down and love is poured out. Let's pray. Father, tonight our our prayer and our desires are very simple. We want to first thank you for giving us peace that vanquishes our fears. Would we know that? We want to thank you for giving us the power of your Holy Spirit. The same power that you, Jesus, used to heal and to forgive And God, we want to ask that you would challenge us to not get that word off of our mind for the rest of our lives, that we are sent. Would we live as ones who are sent with peace and power to proclaim forgiveness? In Jesus' name, amen.